Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI 101, we saw that in a vacuum, Gorbachev's attempts at reforming the corrupt power structure of the USSR in the 80s seemed like they should have been very effective. His twin tenets of restructuring the power mechanisms and advocating for greater transparency are both moves that would be welcome in most societies. However, the timing of these reforms and the context of the oppressive society he introduced them into rocked the Soviet Union to its core. Today, we'll watch as these seemingly positive reforms lead step-by-step to the collapse of the Union. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI 101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we've been talking about the Soviet Union, a very awkward 80s, and a couple of new policies that our buddy Mikhail Gorbachev has put in place to deal with some of these troubles. Poor old Gorbachev. And it's probably going to go okay, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. No, it's not going to go fine at all. The interesting thing about the policies that Gorbachev put in place is that I think if they had been put in place in the very, very early days of the Soviet Union, it could have actually been very beneficial. And I think that if the society had grown up with some of these things in place, they might have been much more competitive on a global scale. But the issue is that the Soviet Union had existed for so long without perestroika the the restructuring economically and politically and without glasnost with the you know freedom of expression freedom of the press uh transparency of the government that when they finally allowed those things there was just this flood of negativity it's like if you were in a coal mining town in the 19th century that you know had the whole company store thing set up And then one day, after all of your workers were horribly indebted and completely without any options, you decided to put out a comments box. Tell us how we're doing. How would you rate your experience on a scale of 1 to 10? So if you put out a comment box and also let another store set up in your company town on the same day, and then went, "Why, why are we losing so much money? And why is everyone angry with us now? Waiting until things are terrible to start being really open about how things are mm-hmm. is, yeah, uh, noble. Like rule one of any PR relations, right? Like, or of, of any PR is like, don't, don't do that. You get examples every once in a while of some company who's done something and they decide to deal with it by, you know, having like a Twitter hashtag, let's talk about it. 
Uh, and they just, they never go well. They just do not. And I mean, the fact that companies are still doing that, despite having seen how badly they've gone, we've got so many examples of how badly this goes, kind of leads me to be a little bit more forgiving of the Soviet Union trying this back in the 80s when really no one had tried that. Not anyone like the Soviet Union, at least. And I don't know. I'm. It's, it's strange that Gorbachev was surprised that people were upset. Or rather, I, I, think, it's, I think it's strange that Gorbachev... Uh, was surprised that it didn't work very well. I'm sure he knew that people would be upset about things because really he was opening the conversation by saying, listen, things aren't that good. But I think he was hoping that by making the first move, it would look like, you know, hey, we're all in this together. Let's work on things. I've got your interests at heart. The man seems unreasonably optimistic in general. I, yeah. I, I don't know how he became leader of the Soviet Union with this kind of attitude in mind and it's not as though he was naive in any way he was um a very intelligent man but yeah i i think he had a lot of very noble ideas about what the soviet union could be or what it could become i saw one description that really stuck with me when i was doing uh some reading up on this actually from an old textbook of mine that said that he was trying to be both the pope and luther at the same time ah which I think is very evocative. Yes, that's that's a very powerful way of putting that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's possibly the best way to summarize Mikhail Gorbachev's place in this entire story very succinctly, and I'm very into that description. But in any case, no, no, people were so very very upset about everything that was happening. And they were upset about the amount of corruption inside the party, despite the fact that Gorbachev was cleaning house on that stuff. Just because it's gone away doesn't mean that you're not angry about decades of corruption. Now that you have a voice. The, the abuse is still there. And yeah, exactly. This is the first time you've had the ability to exercise your your voice and, and, and actually express your dissatisfaction with everything that's happened to you for most of these people for their entire lives. The revolution doesn't mean much to most uh, citizens of the Soviet Union at this point. There's no, there's no uh, revolutionary fervor there. There's no concept of what it was like before the Soviet Union. There are no czarists to hate. Basically, yeah. The, the czarists are boogeymen at this point. They mean nothing. And being told that they're bad, I mean, if anything, it might... I. I the fact that the czarists were somewhat romanticized just after the Soviet Union or the Soviet uh, period doesn't surprise me in the least because you're being told by these abusers and despots that the czarists were terrible and that, you know, getting rid of them led to the Soviet Union. Well, maybe I want them back now. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't that bad. And you know, the reality is, no, the, the czars were not, they were not great leaders. There are a lot of problems with the with the imperial Russian system. Um, it's still the kettle calling the pot black. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I, I mean, serfdom was only was only abolished in the eighteen eighties or eighteen nineties. Serfdom, mm. you know that system that was abolished in Europe centuries earlier, for the most part. Russia gets around to it eventually. Always eventually. So, no, the the imperial system wasn't good, but, I mean, if all you know is the Soviet system, 
which is, you know, is lying to you, but you don't know how. And then all of a sudden they tell you how they've been lying to you. Yeah, you're going to be angry. Of course you're going to be angry. I think we should probably start with everything outside of Russia, just because that's really where the the action starts. Because when all of this stuff comes to light, I I don't want to say that ethnic Russians weren't angry about it, because that's not true. But they weren't necessarily angry about it in the same way that some of the other republics within the USSR were upset about it. Well, uh, my perception is that the USSR itself was very Russia-centric. Like, Russia set up the whole system and dominated everyone else in it. So it Mm -hmm. makes sense that anything that is problematic with the system as a whole, the Russians inherently would not get quite as angry as quickly i mean the 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 base reality of it is that there were gross inequalities in the system and while everyone was doing poorly some of them were doing more poorly than others and yeah of course it it touched off a lot of really major um i suppose you could call them uprisings in various other soviet republics because up to this point national uh, nationalism has been completely suppressed right it's it's about you know one of the one of the core tenets of of communism is you know let's get rid of nationalism we should all be you know like a one world society basically under the banner of communism and that's going to be utopia and that's a really convenient philosophy to use when you're trying to when you're when you're the dominant ethnic group trying to suppress the national tendencies or nationalist tendencies of uh, other groups within that union so all of the things that are coming to light under Glasnost, I mean, we, we talked about the alcohol, alcoholism and, and drug abuse earlier, but also just poor housing and hygiene. Healthcare. Anything to do with healthcare, anything to do with employment, um, anything to do with production and the economy. Uh, like That's sounding like everything. Basically. And I mean, the thing is, if you would come forward in, say, the early 70s when the economy was you know, certainly still lagging behind the West, but doing pretty well. This might have gone this might have gone over a little bit better. Maybe. The bottom of a well, essentially a depression is not the place to start disclosing this stuff. Ideally, if you can. Something to keep in mind. Um and a lot of reports say that, you know, this was like on the scale of the Great Depression, the amount that the Soviet economy had collapsed in on itself during the eighties. Like it was it was bad. It's just that nobody knew how bad because they kept being told that, you know, everything's fine. I know we're going through a little bit of a tough time, but we'll work this out. You know, that's what the central planners are there for. They'll figure something out. We'll get through this together. Do you know whether the um, things were looking bad enough that, that Gorbachev thought that this was a permanent slide? That was he doing this as, as a tr- an attempt to stop a slide down a slope that leads to dissolution regardless that's an interesting question i i don't think he thought that dissolution of the union was imminent when he started putting these things in place i think he knew that they were in the middle of an economic slump and he was trying to reverse it by number one letting everybody know that like yeah listen things are bad but like it's not in your head like things are actually bad and number two, here are the steps that we're taking to try and reverse it, namely perestroika. So we're going to streamline things. We're going to change the way our economy works to make it more efficient and more responsive to market needs, even though it's not actually a market economy. 
supply and demand doesn't just go away just because you're not technically capitalist, right? So he's he's talking about reform, not we're about to collapse. This is a last ditch, a last ditch effort. The thing is, the other side of the coin in a completely repressed society is that they're not really hearing back from the citizens just how unhappy they are. So he doesn't necessarily have a sense of how poorly this is all going to be received by the citizenship, which I think is worth considering when you consider Gorbachev's uh, uh, motivations throughout all of this. Certainly, he was part of the party elite, so he was, by definition, insulated from all of the problems. Absolutely. Massive exposés come out at this point about the life of Stalin and some of the especially heinous things that he did that were not talked about for most of the Soviet period. Ah. Things like the Gulags. Things like his treaty with Hitler, which most people weren't uh, aware had ever happened. Specifically, there was a there was a treaty between the two of them when war first broke out in Europe, basically a, a mutual non-aggression treaty. Both of them signed it knowing that it was never going to stand, but Hitler did it so that he could focus on France without having to worry about his uh, Eastern Front. And Stalin did it because he knew that the army wasn't ready to take on the Nazis. It was a very pragmatic treaty, but nevertheless, it was a treaty with the Nazis. And it's hard to express just how much larger World War II looms in the Russian consciousness when it's already so large in in our minds as, you know, being part of the Western world and and, and our relationship to World War II, where it, it already seems like the biggest thing and casts such a long shadow over our history that to describe that, you know, the, the Russian the Russian experience in that war was two, five, 10, 20 times worse than ours, just in terms of lives lost and, and uh, you know, effect on economy and just like every, every single aspect of the war, it was so much more horrendous for them. For it to come out that, say, French leader had signed a treaty with Hitler would be bad enough. It would be pretty, pretty bad right now. It wouldn't go well. Nope. Um, for it to come out that Stalin had done this, especially when no one knew, it was a paradigm shift of the worst kind. You had party members disavowing Stalin left and right, which is oh wow, just just amazing to think about. So those exposés that you're describing was this as a result of Glasnost, mm-hmm. and a lot in- of this stuff came to light as a result of both declassified documents and. Uh, and the freedom of the press to print this stuff. Because it's not as though none of this information existed. It's just that how do you get your hands on this information if you're a member of the Soviet population? Pravda's not going to print it. No. And um, But if, if it was a mutual non-aggression treaty, one would think that the Nazi party's copies of the records, I mean, they did do lots of burning. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is it just the case that that document would have been one of the ones burned? I mean, it's it's not as though no copies existed. It's that you have a society where every single method of access to information is controlled in one respect or another. I mean, more that uh, I'm surprised that the uh, rest of the Western world didn't... Oh, the West, a... the West knew. Oh. No one within the Soviet Union knew. But it was well known outside the Union. Well enough. It took a while longer for it to come to light, but... but... Everyone knew by the time that 
uh, everyone in the West knew long before anyone within the Soviet Union knew about it. Wow. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's not the best for Gorbachev. Nope, not at all. But I mean, Gorbachev is one of the ones that, you know, part of Perestroika and part of Glasnost was his own distancing of, of himself from um, Stalinism, right? He's talking about things like uh, giving control of means of production back to small groups of workers, small collectives, rather than uh, the central planning, which he would describe as like a more pure form of Leninism than what was put into place under uh, Stalin's industrialization of Europe, right? Certainly, it, but it does that in particular does make him start to look a bit naive because I think he didn't expect it to make people as angry as it yeah. did because again that insular insular nature yeah. and again his focus on reform rather than focusing on past atrocities which naturally are important for the people I, like of course it is um but he's coming at this number one already knowing a lot of this stuff and having kind of come to terms with it himself and number two being the person coming forward and being like no but like i have a plan for dealing with all of this like i'm, I'm i can fix this we can fix this together if we just like work together, I still believe in the Soviet Union. It's not perfect. Let's build a better one. Let's make our union more perfect. Yeah, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> I mean, there's also exposés on ongoing government corruption, which we've kind of touched on. Everything from like petty, you know, guy at the DMV level nonsense with bribes and stuff up to like top tier stuff that's happened that you know they're working on clearing all of that bad wood out of there which again just upset people more and you know like i said i i, I knew we were going to get to a point where gorbachev starts looking like a bit of a chum for letting all of this stuff out i i think i i, I truly understand where or how that thought process works that he didn't realize it was going to break this bad it speaks to the the inequality inherent in the Soviet party system. But again, he's never had any feedback from normal citizens about how angry this was going to make them. So he's used to everyone going along with party line very, very happily. And that's because of the stick, not the carrot. And yeah, yeah, things are different now. This leads fairly quickly to basically the straight up erosion of the Warsaw Pact. Now, the Warsaw Pact is more or less the answer to uh, NATO, right? The the North American or North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Warsaw Pact is a similar mutual defensive treaty among basically all the members of uh, the Soviet Union. Member uh, countries who are all you know part of the the USSR all start kind of moving for more centralized uh, or sorry uh, more decentralized power. Because they're saying, well, if that's what perestroika is all about, if, if moving uh, power away from Moscow is what's going to make us more efficient, okay, well, how about we put a little more power in Kiev? How about we put, like, moving things back, how about let's put a little bit more power in Prague or in Budapest? Let's, now, let's... Now, is this specifically uh, military power? Political power as well. So uh, the Warsaw Pact, was that strictly a military... Uh, agreement or is Warsaw that... Pact was, but the Warsaw Pact basically mirrors the USSR. Right. Um, Warsaw Pact is just kind of 
the only reason I used Warsaw Pact rather than USSR is to differentiate between the political body that is the USSR and the nation state reality of the um, constituent members other than Russia. Usually when we talk about Warsaw Pact members, we're talking about, I, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense initially, but usually when you say Warsaw Pact, it's short form for everybody but Russia in the USSR. It's for all of those Eastern Bloc satellite states. Okay. Because the the implication is that it's um, all of these countries that are surrounding and supporting Russia, whether or not they want to. But yeah, that was that was absolutely worth explaining. It's it's you forget these things sometimes when you when you get this deep into the subjects. All of a sudden, you've got. I, I mean, there's always been somewhat of a mechanism for um, political power within these bodies, in that the USSR is supposed to be kind of the supreme like overarching council soviet means council and so there's supposed to be a, a ukrainian soviet and a georgian soviet and they all fall under the umbrella of the united soviet the supreme soviet and uh they're basically saying like well okay if we're looking at decentralizing why don't we move the power back into those regional soviets because clearly things aren't going that great with the supreme soviet running everything let's see if we can do a little bit better on our own um, kind of, you know, shaking hands with one hand and holding a knife behind your back with the other. They're very, very upset about all of this and looking for any opportunity to kind of restore power. Meanwhile, citizens in every single one of these countries, as well as Russia itself, are starting to really lose faith in the Communist Party, which, again, is different than the actual political mechanisms of the Soviet Union. But the party itself has lost a lot of faith through these uh, these revelations of what exactly has been going on. And... There's enough pressure against the party itself that Gorbachev ends up doing something that I think is maybe his most naive act of all of them. He revokes Article 6. We talked about Article 6 last, uh, last time. It is the, articles that, uh, the article that says that the Communist Party is the only legal political party in the Soviet Union. He's just opened himself up to political rivals. And this is done as a measure of good faith, basically saying, oh. I know. And I mean, some of it, some of it is through political and military pressure as well. But I mean, this is a real Hail Mary move at, his, at this point. He knows that things are going badly. He knows the political or that uh, public interest has turned against him. He's, he's, yeah, he's in a bad way already and he knows it. But this is because we've got pressure from every single one of these satellite state um, governments or, or, or uh, bodies politic, I guess, that they're not really interested in necessarily having the Communist Party as their leadership anymore. Um, they're not saying that they don't want to be communist in some form or at least socialist in some form, but that the Communist Party as an organization is a major problem in their, in their countries and we're not sure about them anymore. So the test um, case for all of this is in Poland. It's so often a test case ground. Yikes. Um, Poland, it's, Poland isn't the first nation to kind of declare some autonomy from the USSR. Um, that honor actually goes to Ukraine, who in January 22nd, 1989, um, issued a declaration of independence. This would be contested over the next few years. It doesn't really go into effect until like the full 
collapse of the Soviet Union, that it becomes its own independent nation state. But this is the beginnings of, of uh, Ukrainian independence. Fortunately, it would remain independent forever. Yikes. I thought we were doing history and not I'm current sorry, events. I'm sorry. I, I mean, if anything, this points to the very complicated nature of the relationship between these satellite states and Russia, who are under the impression that for the past 60, 70 years, things have been really, really good with these other countries, and they might not necessarily agree. They just, you know, every now and then need the Red Army to walk in and make sure there's uniform happiness. <laughs> Dang. Um, yeah, and I mean, U Ukraine in, in particular, because, I mean, things have died down, but within the last couple of years has been in the news so much that the, the main complication there was that when they formally entered the USSR, they were basically arbitrarily given the Crimea by Russia because it had been a, a, a traditionally Russian territory. And when this happened, it's, it's within the context of the USSR with Russia basically going, well, it's basically still ours. It's a token gesture. And, and you know, the, the conflicts now um, are in the context of Russia saying, well, it was always really ours, and Ukraine going, but you gave it to us. And that's the, the core conflict there. So leaving current events aside so, um, and moving on, uh, Poland, since 1980, has really been chafing under under soviet rule like they they've always they, like they they always had issues with the with the the communist leadership and in in 1980 there was a uh it was the first independent trade union so it was a non-government sanctioned workers union and it started by a man named uh ugh, these names i'm i'm only gonna attempt them so many times um but uh lech valesa and it's called Solidarity. And he was like immediately imprisoned for this because this is super not a good thing to do under Soviet rule. You don't just start independent um, trade unions because a, a union by its very nature is politicized in a socialist political system. And you've got Article 6 to worry about and it's, all, it's this whole thing. Things had deteriorated so badly that by 1989, the Polish Communist Party uh, agreed to a semi-free election, which is as not free as it sounds. Okay. The way that it the way that they decided to run this was they were going to do a general election. There would be a number of seats available for uh, you know it's a it's a representative like a parliamentary body. Sixty five percent of the seats would be guaranteed to the Communist Party, and the rest of them would be up for election. So open. Yeah. So, Solidarity, which has now blossomed into like a full-blown political party, not oh, just a, a... That actually stuck around. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this was a resistance throughout the 80s. Like when you hear... Every once in a while you'll hear about sort of Polish resistance to communism. Actually, a lot of the time with reference to Pope John Paul II's influence in Poland. He was Polish himself and had a... He played a a fairly political role for a pope in encouraging people to resist communism in Poland. Um, but really it's, it's, it's groups like solidarity that, that really, you know, drove this forward as well as the crumbling of the USSR that allowed them to drive a rejection of the communist party forward. So they held this, this, uh, this election and solidarity took every available seat, but one, which is 
kind of you can you can see which way the wind's blowing on that one so solidarity itself didn't continue to do particularly well in the polish uh political scene and a lot of people point to this election as being uh one that's against communism rather than necessarily for solidarity and its ideals but the people did speak fairly clearly so this gave poland its first independently elected president who was from the communist party obviously because the election was completely rigged um but it was in a nominally open election arguably yes um that that being semi-free that being your intended use of uh independently elected yeah so well and also because he's not appointed because he is technically elected even though the the election itself is rigged okay so he he went into an election guaranteed the the presidency Wojciech Jaruzelski first uh president of Poland very easy election for him so I mean Jaruzelski became president kind of nominally because really the election was about you know electing the the MPs like the not not so much the the single leader and so he agreed because things were so decisive and because the soviet union was crumbling so badly and because an independent poland was so clearly in the works here that the next year 1990 he agreed to a separate presidential election so just for a a president uh, closer to an american model where the president is elected independently of the the house of representatives and functions as the executive branch correct okay and in that in that election, uh, Valesa won, like, no Legit. questions asked. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very decisively. But usually if you agree to an actual election, that will probably bolster your popularity. Please don't, don't know. look Sometimes, at Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, every, every once in a while, somebody agrees to one of those, and they get elected with, like, 103% of the votes. It's amazing. Some people, you know, we give these dictators bad rap, but some of them are very good at winning elections. It's, it's astounding. Must be their PR machines. <laughs> you know, after after Poland, um, bloc countries just started, like, just dominoes all over the place. By 1990, uh, you've got Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, Romania, all have voted for non-communist party leaders. Um, and this, this whole... Uh, process is called the the revolutions of 1989 sometimes called the fall of nations in reference to the uh the spring of nations and um yeah the 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 communist party has clearly lost all semblance of of complete control over the the east bloc uh in in any way shape or form in may of 1989 hungary specifically under a new uh leadership removed the um physical border between it and uh, Austria. And this was a very, very, very big deal because, you know, up until now, like there was no like free border crossings between any Soviet uh, satellite states and, you know, the free West in quotes. But the fence went down and the government said, yeah, we're not going to stop anybody from crossing it. And all of a sudden people started traveling from East Germany to Czechoslovakia, which is fine because that's another communist nation. And then from Czechoslovakia to Hungary, which is another communist nation. And then when they get to Hungary, making a beeline for the border, crossing into Austria, 
and from Austria moving to West Germany, which is the longest way around that border imaginable, but all of a sudden there's a leak. And in this very small window of time where Hungary is not communist, but East Germany still is, uh, around 13,000 people moved from East Germany to West Germany via this route. Wow. So East Germany's got a problem on their hands now. A very, very, very big problem. I mean, it's not as though they didn't know that people wanted to escape to West Germany. They kind of kind of built an entire wall based on that premise. It, it was like the, the public sentiment here was, was very, very clear. And it, it ended up leading to East Germany's own election cycle, which again led to a non-communist government. And by November 9th, 1989, the borders in Berlin itself, which had been a, a kind of microcosm for the split between East and West Germany, uh, was opened. And it's the first uh, instances of, of sort of popular wall demolition. The Berlin Wall had stood for, for decades as a, as a symbol of that split. Um, in a really awkward way, I mean, Ger- Germany being split up after the war in some senses makes a bit of sense, but, you know, the the immediate uh, entry into the, the Cold War and, and the way that manifested was was a very, very strange situation for Berlin and the way that the, the city was split in half and, and completely locked off from itself. Well, it's a true shame when you think of how much more it might have repaired itself had it not been the immediate transition and it's still very much a, a cultural issue in, in Germany to this day. People still talk about, you know, East and West German people as though that's that's still a real thing. There's a there's a term in German, I, I, I don't know the German for it, but it's uh, the wall in the head, which is this idea of like the psychological wall that still exists between right. East and West Germany. Well, from what I know, there is still a, a measurable economic difference between East and West Germany. There's also, there's also a, a measurable uh, public sentiment um, towards the split. Um, large percentages of the population actually would favor uh, division. Not a majority, not even close to a majority, but enough that it's kind of like, wait, really? Like, some of you guys want to go back to that? That's, that's odd. Uh, now, the, the percentage is much, like, markedly higher in what would be West Germany than East. I was going to say. Which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's it's it still looms very high, uh, very large in their national national consciousness. Um, in two thousand and nine, like on the twentieth anniversary, Angela Merkel commented that they still haven't really finished reunifying. There's still hurdles to be to be crossed, and it seems from from everything I know I know about the situation, she's she's right. The wall coming down has this really like mythic place in the fall of communism, and even even. Considering how recently that happened, uh, a lot of people get the story kind of wrong. They conflate that whole people rushing across the wall in 1989 when it's first opened with sort of a a popular demolition of the wall as though, you know, the people of Berlin kind of came out and they all knocked down the wall together right that night and there there was no more. No, that's, that's not true, actually. I mean, people were chipping off souvenirs, but the actual wall demolition wouldn't take place until like a controlled demolition by like actual construction companies kind of between 1990 and 1992 but uh yeah the germany was reunified in in 1990 it happened very quickly once the once the borders were open and once uh the east german 
uh, government was no longer communist. They they moved towards reunification as quickly as they possibly could. And yeah, the, the wall was mostly um, pulverized, but there's lots and lots and lots of souvenirs. I've actually got a piece of the wall. They're not terribly hard to come by if you really, really want one. Um, it's kind of neat, but doesn't mm-hmm. really have any value uh, other than kind of sentimental. Wasn't the best construction. No, not particularly. I, I don't know. It's it's more it's the you know it's it's more about having a piece of history than it is anything else, right? Certainly. Was there any hesitance on the part of West Germany to unify? Oh, certainly. I mean, the the impact, or the financial or economic impact alone was not to be taken lightly. And I mean, they they did do it as carefully as they could, but at the same time, and and that's that's the interesting thing about. Germany is that it's it's a very young country as you and I talked about on this very show indeed in to be honest one of my favorite episodes um the the myth of German unification was so well constructed that even though they were really only unified between 1870 or so and and uh, 1945 or so that period of time that 80 years or so was enough for them to feel this like desperate need to to make that country whole again especially with the two wars really galvanizing their national identity oh of course and the after effects of the first world war forcing them to pull together in a very significant way Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah there were lots of concerns but i mean there was also international uh, financial aid to make sure that all of this went as smoothly as possible. Um, the reunification uh, resulted in just this massively prosperous period in like a number of senses, both in terms of kind of bringing East Germany back up to speed industrially, because West Germany was absolutely light years ahead. But even even in really like concrete terms, where you know where the wall was. There was a lot of really good land. Mm. It it split uh, an international level city in half with a giant, you know, ditch. Because a lot of people think of it just as as just a wall. There's there's this massive gap. There's two walls, and there's this no man's land between them with, you know, uh, uh, kind of guard towers and things like that to to keep people from from getting across. It was a significant amount of of just square footage. So once that wall was gone, you know, they could really start rebuilding the city in a in a new and, and more unifying way. But as much as Germany having been split between the, the Allied powers at the end of World War II and then West Germany being, you know, put back together in opposition of the Soviet piece of Germany um, shortly thereafter, as much as that whole thing symbolized the, the Cold War and as much as the wall itself symbolized the Cold, Cold War, the reunification of Germany, uh, I think, did as much to symbolize the end of the Soviet era, at least outside of Russia, as uh, any of the other uh, independence movements. Not to not to minimize any of them. Each of them was incredibly important in its own way and as a as a part of a, a massive movement. But in in terms of the the international image of the entire thing, Germany being put back together was was uh, a major symbol of the end of of the Soviet era. Well, it's certainly the most visually dramatic event to look to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you remember any coverage of the wall? No. Neither do I. Too young. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, well, we're the exact same age, but 
yeah, it's, it's, it, this is one of the, the strangest things about doing this research is kind of like, I was alive for all of this stuff, which isn't a thing that I consider for most things that I talk about on this show. And, you know, granted, way too young to realize it or even understand most of it. Try explaining any of that to a, to a child and it's not going to happen. But the idea that I could have somehow seen some of this on the news and just not really be aware of it is, is an interesting notion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's more or less what was going on outside of the Russian component of the Soviet Union. Soviet Russia isn't dead yet, but I think we should probably rewind to some of this uh, breakdown stuff and look at the uh, the Central Russia reaction to to all of these new Glasnost revelations and uh, watch it fall apart from uh, the inside of the government. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Mikhail Gorbachev's very bad two years. We're back on HI101 here with Dan McGinnis. Welcome back. Thank you. No one's ever welcomed me back before. We're glad to have you here. That means a lot to me. Thank you, Dan. We've been talking about how poorly things have been going outside Russia, which one of the things I had the hardest time kind of figuring out about the USSR was that it wasn't just Russia on its own because Russia looms so large in its cultural and political uh, history. It feels like it might as well just be Russia and people use the term Russian interchangeably with Soviet, even though that's not necessarily accurate in any way, shape or form. But the way that actually plays out sort of functionally, is that the things happening in Moscow are the things that sort of define the Soviet Union at this point in time. Well, it's 60 years of Russia and the band. Pretty much. It's so heavily centralized that anytime anyone tried stepping out of line, you know, see Hungary in 1956, see, you know, Prague in 1963, I believe, um, it, uh, it doesn't go well in general. As I said earlier, I mean, there was a lot of outrage about some of this uh, this history coming to light, and there was a lot of unrest about the economic situation and about the food rationing and just the general terrible quality of life that's happening. It's slightly less destabilizing in Russia, but it doesn't matter how much more manageable it is in Russia when you're trying to manage what amounts to a federation, even though that federation up until now has really been ceremonial more than anything this is the first time that these uh these states have tried exercising their rights as as independent nation states and actually succeeded in any way because gorbachev is going i can't militarily intervene in any of these situations uh because that would make me a giant hypocrite gorbachev we've said it so many times is very idealistic smart practical but his idealism overshadows all of those things. The elimination of Article 6, uh, allowing for opposition parties, happens in Russia as well as all of those other satellite states, and it ends up creating similar political problems. He's still the president, or sorry, he's still the head of the Communist Party. And in 89, he's uh, given actually a new post, which is designed to allow him to continue to exert power despite the seeming collapse of the actual communist party he's made president of the soviet union 
up until now, he's been general secretary of the Communist Party. And up until now, that's been the highest role in the Soviet Union. But they decide to give him an actual political role. It's just sort of a technically extranational political role. Uh, it would be similar to like the president of the EU, for example. Meanwhile, in Russia, they create a new uh, legislative body called the, the uh, Congress of People's Deputies, which is going to function kind of like a parliament-style representative body. And, and it's initially chaired by five people, one of whom is Boris Yeltsin. And he's going to go on to become the first you know, president of the Russian Federation after all of the dust settles after this. But Yeltsin had actually been a long time Communist Party member. And then he had tried for some, he tried pushing for some very radical reforms in the mid 80s. And Gorbachev decided he was a little too radical for his taste and kind of politically threw him under the bus. And yet he survived. He did, which is one of the most fascinating things about Yeltsin, but might also speak to some of the uh, weakening of the Communist Party at this point in time. Yeltsin himself didn't really expect to survive. He actually uh, attempted suicide over the whole thing, but was unsuccessful in uh, 1987. Ugly way, too. He tried cutting himself on the chest, which is just, what are you doing? Oh. No, man, stop it. Gives me the heaves when I That's think about it. bleak. Yeah, yeah, very bleak. But he bounces back to co-chair this representative body in uh, in Russia. And so all of a sudden, he's like, he's back on top. He's doing okay. Everything's coming up, Yeltsin. I suppose you could say that. Gorbachev is, like, he's still trying to be liked by everybody. That's that's one of maybe the, the biggest mistakes that he makes, is, like, trying to please everybody. That's that's the That's the thing that leads him to trying to hear the people's voice in the first place, leading to leading to Glasnost. That's the thing that leads to him revoking Article 6, allowing for more free, more free elections. He's trying to please people. And the problem with being a moderate in any revolutionary context is that you're being eaten alive by both ends. When you decide to become a moderate, you are constantly playing defense between... Whichever side is way more conservative than you and whichever side is way more radical than you. Because one side is saying you're going too far and the other side is saying you're not going far enough. You never want to be the guy in the middle of that situation. And yet that's exactly the role that Gorbachev is playing. He's got some critics saying, what are you doing giving all these powers to people? Put Article 6 back in place. Get a a grip on the media. Start cracking some heads and sending some people to gulags. And, and get control of this situation. But then you have other critics saying, like, yeah, I guess what you're doing is okay, but clearly the Soviet system isn't working. Maybe we need to rethink the entire thing from the ground up. And Gorbachev is trying to fend off both of these sides and not really doing a great job. Was there no one powerful enough to unseat him? It seems amazing that he could be making this, this level of changes particularly revoking Article 6, and not have someone say, okay, he's done, and get him out. Right. Well, he is still president of the USSR, which isn't nothing. No. Which means he's got uh, command over everything. He's got control of the military. He's got control of the intelligence. uh, And he's got control of the government, which is a pretty powerful place to be. And it was designed as a very powerful role. Certainly, but there's... uh... The most powerful roles aren't always the ones that you know about. Sure. Well, that's true. 
I'm just Basically, surprised if that's the actually is the case. Well, he he manages to hang on to power at least for now. Okay. Um, I mean, we're not going to end with this end the story with. <laughs> and then he retired and lived a rural life. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not going to end the story with Gorbachev, you know, deciding to spend more time with his family. Let's say. No, the the biggest amount of pushback he gets is from actually this Congress of People's Deputies because they're a legislative body and they start legislating which is what legislative bodies do, except they start making laws that completely step on the Soviet Union's, you know, the, the Union's laws. And Gorbachev is going, what are you doing? And they're going, we're the, we're the representative body. We're legislating. Why? What are you doing? These laws stand. And so there's this weird parliamentary legal standoff between these two weirdly distinct but also overlapping legal authorities. Was the parliamentary body uh, elected in a free election? Yes. An actual... Relatively free election. <laughs> for end of the Soviet yeah. era? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I mean, this is this is elected in the wake of the abolition of Article 6. So right. it's absolutely socialist in nature, but the there, there are a lot of voices within this, within this organization that are not... Uh, a part of the communist party and Yeltsin being co-chair Yeltsin was no longer uh, a member of the communist party he had actually resigned um actually that 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 precipitated his his downfall uh, in the mid 80s was he was one of the first uh, people to ever intentionally and willingly resign from the politburo yeah that's a big deal wow gorbachev didn't believe him at first and then begged him not to and then said okay well fine good luck and then you know sick the dogs on him basically yeltsin had become weirdly a little too idealistic for the communist party his his ideals uh, laid elsewhere let's put it that way okay um he he was far more reform-minded than uh than gorbachev even and really didn't agree with the the direction that gorbachev was taking things and and this is now manifested in this uh in this legislative body so there's there's this weird tension between the two because what which which laws matter more the representative body that represents russia because it's just russia not any other member of the ussr or the president of the entire union especially when all of these other members are falling away anyways this uh legislative body is basically saying we're just doing exactly what poland is doing and what uh, east germany is doing we are representing the Russian people in this whole mess. And that's our only job. We don't care about the larger union. And these are the laws that we're putting in place to do that. That is awkward. Who has the more powerful mandate here? Because it's not very clear in the Constitution. Because this is not a situation they've ever had to, had to deal with before. This whole situation leads to the establishment of yet another new political post, which is President of Russia which uh, is, again, American-style elected separately from the, the representative body, which means there's going to be a prime minister and a president. But Yeltsin runs and wins uh, prime minister, sorry, uh, uh, president of Russia, which means that now we have Gorbachev as president of the Soviet Union and Yeltsin as president of Russia, which really just complicates things more because it co- uh, concentrates even more executive power with Yeltsin, uh, he doesn't have to share it with four other people anymore. Further complicates the idea of what power does the uh, what what power does each uh, president hold? Is 
you know, there are questions of is the president of the Soviet Union even relevant anymore with all of these other uh, Warsaw Pact nations falling away. And it looks like Gorbachev's power base is eroding very quickly. Now, he's still clearly more powerful in the popular estimation of the situation, which is really what matters in a, a standoff like this in a lot of ways. And I don't just mean with the every man on the street. I also mean with military commanders and things like that. But, you know, that dissent that you were kind of alluding to earlier is absolutely brewing throughout all of this. I mean, no one wants to watch uh, the entire system that has given them power just fall apart because that means they'll no longer have any power. And they do start kind of plotting behind the scenes to see, like, what can we do about Gorbachev? Because this is an issue. There's a referendum. It's held in March of 1991. And it's held throughout all of the Soviet countries. And the referendum is asking whether or not people are interested in renewing a union as a federation of independent and equal republics, which is basically an acknowledgement, a tacit acknowledgement at least, that the uh, USSR had been unequal and not independent, right? And this was really Gorbachev's uh, answer to the whole situation that was happening now was basically like, the USSR isn't really working. We, re we really need to redefine what the union is. And so he put this question to the people and it was actually very successful. Um, there were a few nations that protested, declined to participate in the, the referendum, but everyone who participated in the referendum, it was um, uh, nearly 75% acceptance of this proposal that they would continue to operate as a still a federation, but a, a slightly more equally um, represented one. So they can still identify with the overall Soviet uh, organization. Yeah, they see the benefits of being united in the faces of some of the challenges that they're, they're all facing, but they appreciate the um, recognition that the Soviet system, and in particular the Communist Party, hasn't necessarily always been the best thing for them. And this is representative of at least a willingness to examine whether or not a different kind of federalism could work for them. And this is all going great and the referendum passes and they start putting, or, you know, turning their eyes towards working out what exactly this new union is going to look like. But in August of 1991, uh, that coup attempt that you've been looking for finally, finally manifests. And... There's two really interesting things about this coup. Number one is that all eight of the most important people that are involved were actually appointed to power by Gorbachev. Now, it's not necessarily that outrageous when you consider that Gorbachev has appointed a ridiculous number of people. Remember, he cleared house when he got into office and uh, you know some of the less competent people, he kind of moved into less important roles and found people who are better for those roles, which means that people like, for example, the chief of the KGB or the prime minister of Russia or the defense minister, they were placed there by Gorbachev because most people were. But at the same time, those are the people who are trying to revolt against Gorbachev. And this is a, this is a conservative revolt. This is a, an attempt okay. to replace existing Soviet power structures. They're not happy with the idea of this new form of union they're not happy with the reforms that have been put in place by Gorbachev. They think it's dooming the USSR, which one could argue they're right about. And they're looking to make a return to the old system. The second thing that's remarkable about this coup is how incredibly 
ill-prepared they were for making a coup. It was a really bad coup. I've read about a lot of coups in my day. Mm-hmm. This one sucked. Oh. They got some tacit military support, which is good. You need that usually, I guess, for a coup. They waited until Gorbachev was on holiday in Crimea. They, uh, huh? Yeah, that, that was a good call. They arrested. <laughs> they arrested him in his basically lake house. They cut off all communication. They shut down free of pre- freedom of the press. They went to control the Russian White House, which is an actual thing. The, <laughs> there's there's a Russian White House. It's where their parliament sits, and also where their president has their office. So this is where Yeltsin's offices were at this point in time. They wanted to take control of it. And it seems like they were expecting a lot more popular support than they actually got. Hmm. But it turns out that the people actually didn't want to return to an oppressive Soviet regime. Weird. And that as mad as they were, uh, it wasn't necessarily at the essential populist who was implementing the nice reforms correct amazing Mm -hmm. you know it's it's one of those it's one of those things that it's kind of like it's a rule for the courtroom but it's also a rule for coups like never ask a question you don't know the answer to they absolutely did and they got the wrong answer or rather the answer that they weren't looking for i should say the people weren't that interested in helping them out and in fact they were really angry about this coup attempt and then our boy boris yeltsin steps in he storms out of the white house He climbs up on a tank and he delivers this dynamite speech standing on top of a tank turret. I mean, of all the places to deliver a speech. Imploring the people to stand up against this tyranny. And they do. And the few, well, I shouldn't say few, but the the members of the military who were actually complicit in this coup attempt, they started taking orders from Yeltsin instead of their the the people they were that are trying to take power. And I mean, he is standing on a tank at this point. So. Who wouldn't? Basically, you know, it it fell apart like so badly. If you're gonna have a revolution, have a follow up plan. That's the other thing I've learned about revolutions from history. Have a plan of what to do once you've toppled a regime. If you don't have the next little bit figured out, it's not gonna go well for you. People don't just give you power based on goodwill and you know your ability to carry out some summary executions and sweet slogans yeah sweet slogans are very important i agree i agree with that they free gorbachev he's fine he was just under arrest but in as uncertain a political atmosphere as this was he might as well have just been killed basically for the amount of power he lost out of this entire deal I mean, to start with, he didn't stand on any tanks. He didn't stand on a single tank. Which was bad planning. He was weak enough to go on vacation. Like, you know, he's... Basically, what it comes down to is that he's in the middle of a contest of very poorly defined political power where they're balanced on a knife's edge between him and Yeltsin as to who is the more powerful individual in Russia. And Yeltsin stood up on a tank and delivered a passionate speech. And sometimes history tips on stuff like that. As much as we want to intellectualize things. Gorbachev looked weak. Yeltsin looked strong. Yeltsin stood up to a coup attempt and convinced the military to follow him. He was a strong leader in that moment. Gorbachev wasn't necessarily a weak leader in that moment, but he was an absent leader. Yeah. And 
that's enough. And the like he he returned to his post as president of the Soviet Union, but his power had diminished so much because of that incident that his his role was more or less over in most measures. He was, you know, he still held the held the title by name, but the Russian presidency started taking over more and more Soviet institutions just because they could because they were the ruling body of this the the russian federation and people just slowly stopped listening to gorbachev political legitimacy is a funny thing it's something that we don't really consider a whole lot in a very stable very peaceful society but it's interesting in moments like this to see just how tenuous it can be the fact that gorbachev went through a coup attempt that was unsuccessful that he survived and that he kept office in and yet still somehow lost all influence and power is just a fascinating thing to me i'm reminded of the viability of currencies particularly oh, fiat man. currencies fiat currencies scare living daylights out of me i i don't like thinking about them too much because oh man it's political numbers mm-hmm. <laughs> Nope, it's real and it has value, Dan. Don't tell me that. <sighs> oh, boy. It's worrisome stuff. Well, it would never impact our currency, of course. <laughs> Yikes. Um, of course not. Of course not. This whole thing took a downturn so quickly that by the end of the month, by the end of August, Gorbachev resigned as general secretary of the Communist Party. Um, within a month yeah strong leadership has always been important to the communist party even when they had a complete lockdown on political authority in the soviet union this is my own speculation but i think that he was probably fearing for his own life at this point that wouldn't be crazy i think it was probably safer for him to just step down well we had a good run thanks guys because, yeah, the next time it might not be a bumbling Benny Hill-style coup. It might be an actual real one by people who know what they're doing. And he might not survive it. Because locking someone in a lake house is not a great way to do a coup. Generally, no. I'm not like advocating for coups in general here. I'm just saying, I've seen enough of how they go down. They didn't do a good job. He also suspended all party activity out of it, though. I mean, the Communist Party had weakened to the point of basically, like, it wasn't even dead. It was, it was inconsequential, which is almost worse in certain ways. He just shut it down. And the Russian presidency just kept taking over more and more things. And none of the Soviet satellite states cared because they didn't want it. In the next couple of months, 10 of the republics had declared full independence from the Soviet Union. Ukraine had fully seceded by December 1st, 1991, in a 90% yes referendum. Wow. Ukraine was the second most powerful member of the Soviet Union. They were still not that powerful of a country, but you don't lose your second most powerful member, as well as, you know, the breadbasket of the nation— and shrug your shoulders and not worry about it. 
And that's, I mean, that, that was the effective end of the Soviet Union, really. And everyone knew it. That's the crazy part. It just kind of happened overnight. Uh, the, the Communist Party just stopped. They just stopped working. And Yeltsin was in power now. Wow. In December, they started meetings about, like, what are we going to do about this? They got into talks with a number of the republics talking about replacing the Soviet Union with an even, like, less effective uh, overarching body than what they had been talking about in that March referendum. Right. Uh, the new version is called the Commonwealth of Independent States, which actually still exists. It's a, it's a Soviet bloc version of the EU, basically. Um, it doesn't have a lot of real power to it, but, you know, there's, there's you know, free trade, uh, free trade zones in there and economic considerations and things like that. But the fact that you didn't show any recognition when I mentioned it kind of says a lot about its efficacy on an international level. Yeah. It really only comprises eight of the former 15 Soviet states. Like, they, they, lost, they lost everything out of that. And then on December 25th, 1991, Gorbachev resigned as president of USSR and in doing so declared the office officially extinct and the flag was lowered for the last time ever on the Kremlin. The rest of the year, so up until December 31st, there were a few organizations that hadn't been rolled into the Russian Federation yet as part of Yeltsin's runaway train of growing power. Uh, Anything that hadn't been rolled in yet was just shuttered they just shut it down because if yeltsin didn't take it they probably didn't need it i mean that's a good surprisingly effective way of uh cleaning bureaucratic house i guess and that's the end of the soviet union now we have the russian federation and a number of independent states finding their their legs with new nationhood uh you have russia consider uh, continuing on the soviet union's membership in the uh united nations but you also have all of these other nations joining the United Nations under their own flags, you know, it, it surprised everyone. It took everyone completely by surprise. Lots of people knew that the US, uh, USSR was in bad shape. A lot of people didn't realize how bad a shape it was in. Even the most dire predictions didn't show it falling apart as quickly as it did. And it's, it's absolutely remarkable because it turns out that that entire country was just a bunch of spinning plates and... Gorbachev spun one a little too hard and it started to wobble and he lost control of everything. The the two things that are most amazing to me are the fact that it happened so uh, bloodlessly, such a such an incredible uh, change over a relatively short period of time mm-hmm. w- without a successful coup, without a wide-scale murder. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that it that all of it happened just because Reagan told them to tear down the wall. God. Reagan did tell them to tear down the wall in 1987. And What a hero. <laughs> and the more I read about the twilight years of the Soviet Union, the more people, you know, giving the United States credit for the fall of communism and specifically Reagan credit for the fall of communism the more ridiculous it seems he seems like the perfect person to me though to to do that he does like the the older cowboy president <laughs> image who hates the who hates communism and 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 i don't know that much about reagan but it, uh, he, he seems like the perfect person to to be there when it falls and and to just like high five everyone like 
what a great job we did. Mm-hmm. We Mission did accomplished. It, <laughs> it's you know a lot of the a lot of the protests in the the satellite states in the in the process to get that you know get the free elections and things like that were you know certainly not non-violent there was plenty of violence there but like yeah i mean in 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 relative terms in in you know compared to what political revolution of that scale normally looks like not too bad it i mean particularly for the the soviet bodies like the lack of a systematic genocide is pretty incredible Mm -hmm. because they kind of that was one of their things yeah and i mean you know no no one's no one's going to claim that the the aftermath of this disintegration was uh you know coming up roses or anything like that all of these states have you know to some extent or another uh struggled mightily with with uh the transition to some form of republicanism or another right like i mean uh, russia went through a, a a massive uh, economic depression afterwards because, you know, when this fall was happening, there were all these people who were almost excited about it in the West because it's kind of like, it's happening. It's finally happening. We finally get to see what happens when com- or when capitalism comes to Russia. And it turns out bad things, like really bad things. Russia yeah. did terribly for basically a decade. And it's not an indictment of, of capitalism in any way. I think, if anything, it demonstrates that, you know, it wasn't necessarily communism itself that led to the fall of the Soviet Union. It's not the economic problems yeah. that were the were, were the problem there. It was the endemic corruption uh, throughout basically every level of government, and that wasn't new to the Soviets. They they inherited it from the from the Imperials. And it didn't end with the Soviets that rolled right into the Russian Federation in a lot of ways, especially in those very, very early years. The number of very wealthy people who exploited a very new country is is just absolutely staggering. And a lot of wealth was made by a very small number of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, a huge percentage of the population uh, went through a very difficult time because of all of this. The fact that Yeltsin navigated them through those difficult years and retired bloodlessly I believe it was uh december 31st 1999 he he uh transferred power but the fact that he he you know navigated the whole 90s and uh you know managed to do so without yet another coup is admirable maybe surprising even and the satellite states you know various levels of success depending on levels you know a, a number of factors but you know levels of local corruption absolutely played into it but yeah, ultimately, none of these states seem terribly disappointed to be out from under the uh, under the thumb of, of Soviet rule. And, you know, I, I, I really do want to stress that I don't think it was the communism itself. I think that the Soviet Union was really just not that communist at all. And that, you know, I, I, I think corruption of any sort under any economic or political uh, system can lead to some really terrible conditions for its uh for its citizens so was the failure of the soviet experiment a damning one for communism i i personally feel like no even though of course it was celebrated that way but you know to to actually put a nail in that coffin i i I don't think it's uh 
I don't think it's sufficient to point to the USSR and say, you know, see, it didn't work. That seems far too simplistic to me, especially looking at the number of factors that went into uh, that political revolution. And the way that it, that the revolution happened, that it, that it was a falling apart on a political level. Sure. If there had been uh, an internal coup and a, and a massive or, or even a, a popular uprising that precipitated all of this or uh, war with the West, I, I might have different feelings about it. But in reality, the, the system was just rotten. And, I, you know, I've seen it argued that maybe it should have fallen apart a lot sooner than it did if, uh, you know, if maybe they hadn't received some of the international aid that they did. Yeah. But That's speculative. Nukes. Yeah, but the nukes, yeah, absolutely. That's speculative, absolutely. And, and you know, therefore not really worth anything more than just kind of going, huh, that's interesting to think about. But yeah, the, the nukes. And it was important. It was important to have Yeltsin there for Gorbachev to go, he's the one that controls the army now. He's the one that controls the nukes. Like that, that's all locked down. Don't worry about it kind of thing. Yeah. Very, very important to just global stability. Enough stuff slipped through the cracks with the uncertainty that was there in the late 80s that if the entire system had fallen apart completely, I, I hate to think what might have come of that. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it always seemed to me like anytime any class or any documentary or anything like that comes to the end of the Soviet era, it seems a little glossed over. And given the complexities of it, I kind of understand why, to some extent at least, because it's really hard to put a button on it. Like, what's, what's the takeaway here? Corruption is bad. If you're corrupt, don't tell people. You know, transparency can go too far. I, like, I don't know. Well, I think the takeaways from the sounds of it, the people of the USSR are lucky that they had Gorbachev at the top. Um, I, I think I would agree with that. It seems like he was a good transition figure mm-hmm. because he was trying to make people happy and that that resulted in less bloodshed sure and i don't mean to you know lionize gorbachev too much no no he's he's not anywhere close to a perfect figure he he, certainly not his it's more his mistakes that were good than anything uh that's an interesting point i like that from his own uh outlook and and his position that they were probably mistakes yeah but um thank goodness for them yeah, and, and I mean, he's he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's he's tried to break back into politics a, a couple of times since, which oh, is... That's awkward. That's an uphill battle. <laughs> Just, mm. But, you know, he's he's still going strong and still, you know what? He still cares deeply about the, uh, the direction that Russia is headed, which is, you know, if anyone was ever going to retire, I feel like surviving a a coup and then having power bloodlessly removed from you and then shutting down an 80 year old empire. That was one of the major, one of the, you know, one of the two major superpowers of the world. Like go like take a fishing trip, man. You've earned it. Have a margarita. Just kick back for a while. Mr. Gorbachev, if you're listening, um, take another vacation. Maybe not in Crimea. I know the one in Crimea went real bad. It might go bad again right now. Pick so. another place. <laughs> Anyways, that's that's the Soviet Union. Any other final comments or questions or observations? No, I think that's a pretty coherent picture. 
Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for coming on too. Oh, thanks, man. It's always a pleasure. The end of the Soviet Union is about as clear a delineating marker as you're likely to get in history. From a global perspective, it's easy to point to its collapse as a clear change in geopolitical temperature. But internally, that collapse is somehow both far more complicated and far less grandiose than it would seem from a bird's eye view. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the Three Kingdoms period of Korea. Watch for that episode on October 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.